Our text this evening is Lord's Day 44, but before we look at that, I'd like to read with you a chapter from Romans, Romans 7. In some ways, um, Romans 7 is one of my favorite chapters because it is so very real in terms of its description of what we often feel. By that same token, it's one of my least favorite chapters because it's so real in its description of our experience, which is difficult in this world. It's an experience of tension. But it's helpful for us to note that we're not alone in that. That continued struggle against sin in the heart is something that God's people always experience in this life. Romans 7, Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passion, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. And that brings us to Lord's Day 44 and its treatment of the Tenth Commandment, which in brief is, You shall not covet. And that Lord's Day asks, What is God's will for you in the Tenth Commandment? And the answer is that not even the slightest desire or thought, contrary to any one of God's commands, should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of that obedience. Nonetheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? Two reasons. First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. And second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal of perfection. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the longest time, whenever I'd read through the Ten Commandments, study through the Ten Commandments, this last commandment struck me as being sort of overkill. Because after all, Jesus taught us, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, that God cares not only about what we do, but also about what we desire. That means that according to Jesus himself, each commandment of the law shows us that God cares about our hearts, cares about our minds, cares about our desires. So then we come to the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And I would think to myself, didn't we already cover this? Didn't Jesus himself teach us that we mustn't embrace the desire to kill someone, the desire to commit adultery, the desire to steal? Sure he did. So why a separate commandment to tell us what all the other commandments already tell us? Well, here's the thing. When Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't really bringing something brand new. To be sure, God's people at that time, particularly the ones who were known for their religiosity, known for their piety, they focused on the outward, they focused on the appearance, they focused on dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's. Jesus was reminding them, not of something new, he was reminding them of something they should already have known, and a lot of it was simply a reminder of this 10th commandment. That God cares far more about what happens in the heart 
than about what happens in the hand, because the hand is merely a reflection of the heart. The hand is merely an overflow of the truth and the reality that arises within. And that is what the Tenth Commandment shows us. Really, this commandment is a unique commandment, because it doesn't really bring us any new territory. It simply goes back to each of the previous commandments and says, not only outside, also within. Not only what is seen, but also what God sees. And that's really hard for us. Because let's be honest, we're pretty good at cleaning up. We're pretty good at putting on a show when we need to. When the spotlight is on us, when there's people around, we can dress up, we can clean up, we can look good. But this commandment says, no, that's not really enough. That's not really sufficient. What God cares about is not only how you look to others, but how you look to Him, and He sees the heart. And because this commandment takes all the other commands deeper, this command is exceptionally unique and exceptionally humbling. And so as we consider this commandment, we're going to see that God gave it to challenge His children with a command that is all-encompassing. That's our theme. God challenges His children with an all-encompassing command. And there are really three ways in which this commandment is all-encompassing. The first way of which is the fact that it emphasizes it emphasizes our inescapable transgression of God's law. And that's the first point we need to see. But let's start with the basics. We, this Tenth Commandment is a commandment against coveting. What is coveting? Coveting is wanting what God has not willed for me to have. It's wanting what God has not willed for me to have. There's two aspects to that. Not having and desiring, Right? What we don't have, what we lack, well, that could include just about anything, right? It could include possessions, anything from from bicycles to baby dolls, right? It could include abilities, maybe a musical talent or an ability to fix things or a skill in cooking. It could include experiences, going to exotic lands, learning new and exciting things. It could involve resources, money or, or power or fame. We desire something which we lack. And that desire arises within. Your heart longs for that which you don't have. Your mind thinks upon the possibilities if you had possessed it. Your passions lust to obtain that object of your desire. You allow yourself to dwell on that which you do not have. So coveting is an inward thing. It's a a desire to have what God has not given you. God says that coveting is wrong. It's a sin. In fact, it belongs, says Paul, to the fruit that is born by those bound by sin and destined for death. Coveting is a sin that continually grows. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Whatever it is that you covet... 
You won't end that coveting, young people, old people, hear that. You covet money, that's not going to end by getting more money. You're just going to covet more money. You covet land, that's not going to stop just because you get some land. You're going to want bigger land, right? Because ultimately it's not really about what you lack. It's really about discontent, discontentment with God. And that's what makes it sinful. It's about discontentment with God. God gave His law, among other reasons, in order to reveal to us our rebellion. We heard Paul say, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had, said, had not said, You shall not covet. When the law commands us to not covet, it's not as though we hadn't done so. It's just that we hadn't recognized the sinfulness of it. It's kind of like those... Those little paper and plastic glasses you wear if you watch a 3D movie. You go to a 3D movie without those glasses, the 3D effects are still there. But you don't really see them. Right? You know something's a little off with the film, but you're not really sure what. It's still there. You can't perceive it. But then you put on those, those little glasses that they hand out at the door... And all of a sudden, you can see all of those special effects. All of a sudden, you can perceive all the the extra to that. Well, that's what the law does with regard to our sin. Apart from the law, our hearts would still engage in coveting. Apart from the law, our hearts would still dive into that sin. But the law reveals it for what it is, which is sinful rebellion against God. And Paul says the law even makes it worse. He says, the, the commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So he asks, did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And the commandment might be sinful beyond measure. In other words, this commandment teaches us to, to see, to be aware of the sin that exists in our hearts. Having become aware of what's in our hearts, we become, well, frankly, perversely, we become more likely to do what we ought not to do. Suddenly we realize that we're lusting and we start lusting more. Suddenly we realize we're prone to hatred and we hate even more. We recognize that we're longing for what we don't have and we long all the more strongly for it. It's a vicious cycle. The more we see the rebellion within us, the more we're tempted to embrace that rebellion. So why does God do it? Why does He show it to us? Well, if we didn't recognize the depth of our misery, we wouldn't plead so fervently for release, for rescue. God wants us to see the fruitlessness, the hopelessness of trying to deliver ourselves from our rebellion. He calls us to reject coveting because that deals not just with the outward. If, if all we had was the outward, we could think we were doing okay if we managed to hide it, if we managed to keep it just within. I'm not cheating on my wife, I'm just, you know entertaining those thoughts. I'm not actually stealing anything from the store. 
I'm just imagining how I could get away with it. I'm not killing anyone. In actuality. But when he calls us to not covet, we see that the fact that it never makes it to our hands, that doesn't make it less sinful. It just makes us more, or reveals us as being more cowardly. Unwilling to pay the price for our rebellion. Coveting reveals that the sin is still there and that it's actually a rebellion against God. Think about it. Covetousness arises when we believe in our hearts that what God has withheld, He should not have withheld. In fact, there's a sense in which coveting is the first sin that was ever committed. Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was good for food. She looked at it, she considered it, she pondered the possibilities. That's coveting. Long before she ever took a bite, she embraced that sin in her heart. And so do we. We see the warning of it throughout Scripture. For instance, in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Notice, not those who go out and steal, but those who desire to be rich. They covet. They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice, it's not money that is the root of evil. It is the love of money. It is coveting after money. Because what we're really doing is saying, God doesn't know enough to give me the money that I deserve. God has withheld something from me that I ought to have, and so now I'm going to take that, maybe I'm going to take that course, take that path that's going to get me that money, or maybe I'm just going to imagine how great it would be. Either way, in our hearts, we're saying, I know better than God. I would be smarter than God. I would be a better leader than God. And how can we do that without ultimately hating God? Now, in this life, our transgression of the law by coveting is somewhat inescapable. We will continue to see it throughout our life. That's hard, but it's also good because it keeps us from ever becoming content with us. The Apostle Paul, who had been rescued from being a persecutor of the church who had seen Jesus post-resurrection face-to-face, had been taught by him, the, the apostle who planted the church throughout Asia Minor, looked upon the sin in his heart that the law revealed, that the Tenth Commandment revealed, and cried out, Wretched man that I am! I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And that was a very good thing because day after day after day after day it plunged him to his knees in front of the Lord acknowledging I cannot stand before you on my own two feet. Only by Christ, only by his salvation, only by that of which I am not worthy. And so must we. You see it's a very good thing that we recognize the inescapability of transgression in our hearts. We can't escape. Only Christ can rescue us. What we saw this morning concerning the Passover. We couldn't get out of our slavery any more than Israel could get out of Egypt. 
But God rescues us. God delivers us. And he shows us the fruitlessness of resting in our own hearts, in our own efforts, through this commandment. And yet, Lord's Day 44 shows us that we will, if we're truly believers, we will have a small beginning of obedience of God's law. And notice it says that, With absolute assurance. There's no maybe, there's no possibility, there's no doubt. We do begin to live, it says. We do begin to obey. No question about that. The old nature, the old man causes us to covet. But that is no longer our true nature. Once we turn to Christ, we are no longer that one who lived for coveting, who lived for sinning, who lived for rebellion. Now we've been given a new nature, a nature that is fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, a nature that hates sin, a nature that's made to bear fruit under the glory of God. That's who we now are. That's our identity. And therefore, this commandment also encourages our obedience, albeit an imperfect obedience, to the law. Certainly, in this life, our obedience will be flawed. That's evident in the Apostles' Confession. Verses 15 and 16 and 18, he says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I agree with the law that it is good, but I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul wants to obey the law. He just finds himself not succeeding. He's doing some of what he should, and yet he sees that his success is limited, that it's faltering, that he's stumbling toward holiness. Nevertheless, he's stumbling toward holiness. And if we belong to the Lord, so will we. After all, rejecting covetousness is essential to the lifestyle of a true Christian. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Notice that contrast. Before, when we were trusting in ourselves, when we were resting in ourselves, where did we trust? We trusted in our own ability. We were haughty. We were arrogant. Or we trusted in our riches, our abilities, our possessions, our friends, our power. But none of that will work. All that will do is deepen our rebellion and deepen our debt. But if now we're trusting in God, then we have true hope. We have true deliverance. We have true assurance. It's an either or. Either you trust in yourself and your wealth and your stuff, or you trust in the Lord. Covetousness is trusting in anything or anyone other than God. Covetousness is the opposite of faith. So if our faith is real, we will begin to reject covetousness. Think of what 1 John 5 says. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you are in Christ, if you belong to Him... You will start to love God and you will show that love for God in rejecting the sin that he hates. 
His commands, says the Apostle John, are not a burden. Now, that's not to say that we will obey perfectly, but neither will it be a burden, neither will it be something we hate. To the contrary, we will long to obey the Lord. He saved us from eternal destruction. He provided what we could never have begun to earn. Why would we not love Him intensely, deeply longing to serve Him? And so, trusting God, we will begin to follow Him. And this Tenth Commandment will show us that that beginning to follow Him, it'll start within. It won't just start with not killing our brother, not stealing from that store, not lying about our neighbor. It'll start with Refusing to lie about our neighbor in our heart. Refusing to long for that thing which I don't have. Refusing to hate my neighbor. Putting those thoughts away from me. That's our calling as believers. To begin today to obey the Lord. Flee from covetousness. And as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. Notice how all of those are within. Just as covetousness, just as rebellion against God starts in the heart, so too holiness and obedience of God starts in the heart. Pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. When your heart and your mind, let's be practical about it, when your heart and your mind begin longing for money or sex or power, renounce it. Fall to your knees and pray for the strength to reject what comes so natural. And then declare in your heart, that stuff is no longer welcome here. That's not who I am. That's not what identifies me. That is no longer me. That's our calling in Christ. In every area of life with regard to everything we could covet, whether power or possessions or ability or opportunity, we are to strive each day to reject that rebellion of the heart and to take up instead faith. Psalm 131. I don't have that thing I long for, but I trust that God knows best. I'm offended by the way I was treated by this person, but I trust that God is a good judge. I long for this thing, but I know God has withheld it for good reason, and so I will trust in Him. That doesn't come natural. But the Tenth Commandment tells us that it must come if we belong to Him. And so seeing that we won't do it on our own, we will fall to our knees and we will beg every morning. We will beg every evening, Lord, remove this heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Remove this longing for rebellion, this longing for what you have refused me. And give me contentedness and trust in Christ. He loves that prayer. And the more we pray it, the more we will see how He answers, the more we will see how He transforms not just our hands, not just our behavior, but the desires that arise within. But then Lord's Day 44 concludes with this really insightful question. Since in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why then does God want them preached so pointedly? Seems kind of mean, doesn't it? Like we're just 
getting flogged with the same thing over and over and over again, even though we can't do it. But it points out that God has two very good reasons for that. And those two very good reasons comprise an impossible but essential calling brought by the law. The first part of that calling is to continually remind us of our need for Christ. Paul said in Romans 7 verse 8, Apart from the law, sin lies dead. That doesn't mean that sin is non-existent apart from the law, but rather that sin is invisible apart from the law. Without the law revealing it, we can... I tell young people this all the time. We can lie to no one as effectively as we lie to ourselves, right? Yeah, our conscience rises up and says, hey, that's a bad idea, but our conscience gets quieter every time we ignore it, right? Pretty soon, our conscience doesn't even bother to try. It's like a lost cause. But the law never gets quiet. The law never stops crying out, that's wrong, that's sin, that's rebellion, don't do it. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. But as soon as the law comes forth, it reminds us of the reality, that's wrong, that's rebellion. And God wants us to be perfectly, painfully aware of our sin. So the law ensures that we will be. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. God wants us to see our sin as sinful beyond measure. He wants us to despise it, to hate it, to long to escape from it. That's why for Christians, the law always leads us to echo what Paul said at the end of this chapter. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close to hand. I delight in the law of God in my heart. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I want to do what's right. I want to serve the Lord and I I strive for it and I fail. And when that happens, we recognize that we can't fix it. We have to hear this law all the time so that we remember I can't fix it. And so that more and more and more we turn to the Lord. How does Paul conclude that wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death? Certainly, certainly, that is the confession, that is the plea that will begin the Christian life. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I praise my Lord for Jesus Christ. But that's not a one-time confession. As long as we live in this fallen world, as long as we wrestle against the old man, that will be, must be, a daily confession. We need to be constantly reminded that I stand not on my own two feet, not by my own power, but by Christ. By Christ and by Christ alone. Day after day after day rejecting self-reliance. Day after day after day confessing that it is Christ and Him alone who delivers me. And the law assures that sin never seems okay. But then there's a second reason why the Lord extends this preaching of the law to us. And that's to encourage us as those saved by Christ, as those who've turned to Him, 
to keep striving for renewal. Romans 7 verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And this good law, says verse 6, calls us to serve God in the new way of the Spirit. Now by our own, we can't. We always fall short. But by setting before us that good standard of the law, the Lord leads us to plead for something better. He leads us to not be content with that continual fall back into sin. Now hear this well. As long as we live in this world, until the Lord takes us to heaven or Jesus comes back, we're going to struggle. Our climb into sanctification isn't this beautiful straight climb. No, it's, it's a halting up and down, forward and backward struggle. But it's a struggle we're called to engage in. As we rely, as the law teaches us to rely in Christ for our salvation, the law also teaches us to plead with Christ for our sanctification. Coming more and more and more to hate our sin, and we should. Every time we read those Ten Commandments, every time we evaluate our lives, every time the Tenth Commandment calls us to open up our hearts and see what lurks within, every time we see how far short of the holiness and the righteousness of Christ we come, we ought to be more and more and more disgusted with that and more and more and more longing for the holiness and the perfection that is to come. And the more we long for it, the more we pray for it, the more we'll start to see victory. Those sins that once seemed so insurmountable soon will start to overcome them. Those rebellious patterns that once were so ingrained that we didn't even think about them, we'll start to despise them, to hate them, to ask for help to escape from them, to ask for help from our friends and to ask for help from the Lord. We'll take concrete steps to get out of it. And more and more, our life will be conformed to Christ. But that won't happen without this. Without the law exerting that constant influence, calling us to something better, showing us the ugliness of something worse. Urging us to plead for that which we cannot attain on our own, but which we will begin to experience through the power of Christ that we beg for. So much more could be said, but at the end of the day, it is this. God challenges His children with this all-encompassing command that shows us that the, the law, it penetrates to our deepest parts. It penetrates to the desires within us, whether rebellious or righteous. More often rebellious. And in doing so, it teaches us to plead for the salvation of Christ and to pray daily for the strength of Christ and the conviction of Christ to turn us out of those patterns and back unto Him. So we need to take up that law gratefully, knowing that it's going to hurt, knowing that it's going to reveal the need for change that we don't want to change or reveal the ugliness of our sin that we really don't want to see but recognizing that God has prescribed this difficult, humbling command 
so that we'll no longer rest on us, we'll no longer be content with us, but we will plead for him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to be content with rebellion. But rather, you've given us this tenth commandment so that we can see that the root of our rebellion is within. And seeing that, we can turn daily unto Christ, resting not at all in ourselves. And we can pursue the power of the Holy Spirit that you've promised to those who seek so that we might truly begin, even now, to take up your obedience. Father, you are very good. You know exactly what we need. Grant that we might embrace what you've given with gratitude and with confidence in you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.